If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City, one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City. Our guest speaker this morning is Dr. Ryan Bonfilio, who joined the Candler faculty in 2018. He previously taught at Columbia Theological Seminary and served as the John H. Stimbler Scholar in Residence at the First Presbyterian Church USA of Atlanta. He is also the director of the Theo Ed Talk speaker series, which you can Google. The next fact I want to share will probably get me in a little trouble, but I promised my doctor of ministry colleagues that I would share it. Um, Ryan doesn't put this on his resume, but when he was a Princeton Seminary student, he did a thousand push-ups in sets of 25, finishing in 20 minutes and 50 seconds to break the Guinness World Record set by fitness guru Jack LaLanne in 1956. I know, right? Mayflower knows Dr. Bonfilio best as the professor who changed my preaching and teaching last fall while I was in his class, Issues in Old Testament Interpretation. I am a better preacher because of Ryan's biblical scholarship and teaching, and Mayflower has seen the fruits of that labor. So friends, please help me give a Mayflower welcome to Dr. Ryan Bonfilio. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from Matthew 26, verses 6 through 13, and Deuteronomy 15, verses 1 through 11. I'll start with Matthew. Now, while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when the disciples saw it, they were angry and said, why this waste? For this ointment could have been sold for a large sum and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? She has performed a good service for me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And now from Deuteronomy, chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Every seventh year you shall grant a remission of debts, and this is the manner of the remission. Every creditor shall remit the claim that is held against a neighbor, not exacting it of a neighbor who is a member of the community, because the Lord's remission has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner, you may exact it, but you must remit your claim on whatever any member of your community owes you. 
There will, however, be no one in need among you, because the Lord is sure to bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you as a possession to occupy, if only you will obey the Lord your God by diligently observing this entire commandment that I command you today. When the Lord your God has blessed you as he promised you, you will lend to many nations, but you will not borrow. You will rule over many nations, but they will not rule over you. If there is among you anyone in need, a member of your community and any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your needy neighbor. You should rather open your hand, willingly lending enough to meet the need, whatever it may be. Be careful that you do not entertain a mean thought, thinking the seventh year, the year of remission is near, and therefore view your needy neighbor with hostility and give nothing. Your neighbor might cry to the Lord against you, and you would incur guilt. Give liberally and be ungrudging when you do so, for on this account the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all you undertake. Since there will never cease to be some in need on earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Friends, good morning. good morning. It is a great joy and honor to be here with all of you. I feel like I've been getting to know your congregation from a distance over the past year as I've gotten to know and work with Reverend Walkey. I am so encouraged to learn about your commitment to inclusion, the ways that you labor for justice, and all the ways that you embody God's compassion for this world. It is an honor and joy to be here. Will you pray with me? Everlasting God, break open this word for us this morning. Then in encountering your truth, our hearts might be transformed as we come to hear and believe your gracious promises for your people and all of your creation. Amen. This morning, I want to start a conversation about the Bible and poverty. Now, I know that's quite a doozy of a topic for about 10.30 a.m. on a Sunday morning, and it's quite a big one, too. I promised Reverend Walkie that I would not preach any longer than an hour. Uh, I understand that to be your tradition. Um, no, just kidding. I'm Presbyterian, and we don't really go over 20 minutes. And also, I hate it when guest preachers go long. So I'll do my best <laughs> to keep this short. But despite these risks, I think this conversation is worth having. If for no other reason, then it's just plain impossible to sidestep poverty whether we're dealing with society or dealing with scripture. Poverty is arguably the single greatest epidemic that threatens the health and vitality of our country today. Just consider some of the numbers. At any given time in the US, there are 64 million people living below the poverty line. 40% of Americans will experience poverty one year of their life. 250,000 Americans die each year from poverty-related causes. That's only third to cancer and heart disease as the leading causes of death in our country. And consider this. The 500 richest families in the United States have as much wealth as 50% of Americans combined. All of this is why Martin Luther King Jr years ago named poverty along with racism and militarism as one of the three evils in our country. 
At the same time, economic inequality and disparity is a topic that looms large in scripture. By conservative estimates, there are at least 2,000 verses in the Bible that deal with economics and poverty and wealth. Jesus himself talks more about poverty than he does about heaven and hell and marriage and end times and baptism and sex combined. From the law to the prophets, from the wisdom literature to the writings of Paul, the reality of economic inequality is arguably one of the chief concerns of this strange and sacred text that we call scripture. The great theologian Karl Barth once said that we should approach faith with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. So that we're always reading the one in light of the other, that how we read scripture approaches how we uh, uh, approach the world and, and, and what we know about the world affects the questions we ask about scripture. And I think that if we do this, if we take Karl Barth's advice, we will be compelled to talk openly and honestly and continually about the reality of poverty and the place poverty release, relief plays in our lives of discipleship. My goal, though, this morning is not to convince you that poverty is an issue that you should care about. I suspect that all of you already have that on your radar screen. Now, what I want to do is open up a conversation about what Jim Wallace, the founder of Sojourners, has called the most famous text in all the Bible about poverty. And it's a story about the anointing of Jesus at Bethany that we just read from Matthew 26. It's a short text, but it's also a puzzling text. And it offers a great entry point to the Bible's approach to poverty. It confronts us, in a nutshell, with the fact that when addressing economic inequality, meaning well doesn't always equate to doing good. As we turn to Matthew 26, we find Jesus in the final week of his life. He and his disciples have traveled to a little village called Bethany, a village whose name in Hebrew, Beit Ani, literally means house of the poor. So you know what the story is going to be about even before it gets started. While Jesus was reclining at a table, an unnamed woman approaches. And she's carrying this jar of costly ointment. And she pours it out on Jesus' head. And immediately the disciples are outraged. Why is this woman wasting this costly ointment when it could have been sold and the proceeds could have gone to serving the poor? It's not hard to see where the disciples are coming from, right? While Matthew doesn't put a price tag on that costly jar of ointment, in the parallel story in the Gospel of John, it's said to be worth 300 denarii, which is about a year's worth of wages. That's no small amount in ancient times or even today. And perhaps the disciples have in the back of their mind that story that Jesus told one time about his encounter with the rich young ruler, where he invites the rich young ruler to go and sell everything he has and give it to the poor. Maybe the disciples just wished that woman would follow that example. Whatever their rationale, Jesus sees things differently. He says to them, leave this woman alone, for she has performed a good service for me. And then there's that line, for you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Now, I don't know about you, but I sometimes wish I had access to the director's cut 
of the New Testament. Because I want to hit pause and I want to hear the background interview with Jesus <laughs> where he unpacks what he meant by what he said because it's not totally clear to me why he's upset with the disciples and why he's not in favor of their plan to sell the costly ointment and give it to the poor. Well, if you look up this verse online, which I always warn you about, or you look it up in popular commentaries, you'll see a couple things continually pop up. One, you'll see interpretations that say that, that Jesus is essentially saying that poverty is inevitable. Look, there's really not much we can do about it in the end. The poor will always be with us. And then you also see, because of that, these commentaries say that while caring for the poor is, is something nice to do, poverty shouldn't distract Christians from the main thing, from the important thing, from the thing that we should have our focus on, worshiping Jesus. And this interpretation is essentially pitting the actions of the woman against the actions of the disciples. You see, the disciples are focused on a problem that can't be solved, so the commentaries tell us. While the woman, well, her focus is solely on Jesus. In pouring out that oil on his head, it's an act of adoration. It's an act of worship. She takes the most precious thing that she has, this jar of ointment, and she anoints Jesus. It's a public way of saying that she believed that Jesus was the Messiah, which literally means the anointed one. And it's to him that all of her attention and all of our attention is owed. Now, I'm sure this sort of interpretation, as common as it is, is well-meaning. But for me, I find it highly problematic. For you see, it leads to the strange paradox that the Bible's most famous passage about poverty actually gets us off the hook of caring all that much about poverty in the first place. And that's what you end up with with most popular interpretations of this verse. But I think there's another way of reading this text. There's a way of untangling this paradox. But to get there, we need to understand three things that are in the background of Jesus' words, the poor will always be with you. Here's the first. We need to recognize that Jesus didn't just minister to the poor. Rather, Jesus himself was a poor man. Now maybe this is already very obvious to you, but in many churches I'm in, including my own, in my experience, we so often remake Jesus in our own image. You know, God made us in our image and we tend to return the favor. And Jesus is no exception. We imagine Jesus as this educated, white class, or middle class white man. Well, of course, Jesus wasn't white, we all know that, but it's also the case that he wasn't literate. And it's probably even the case that he was homeless. As the son of a carpenter from an impoverished town of Nazareth, Jesus would have belonged to a social class that existed on the economic margins of ancient society. At the end of his life, Jesus was even too poor to have his own tomb. And Jesus was not alone. Under Roman control, poverty rates around the Sea of Galilee, which is where Jesus was born and lived and ministered most of his life, poverty uh, rates in that region, by conservative estimates, were between 90 and uh, 95%. Some scholars suggest it was even 99% of people were impoverished. 
to try to understand Matthew 26, or really all of Jesus' teaching, apart from knowing the economic conditions in the Galilee and in the places that Jesus lived and ministered, would be like trying to understand Martin Luther King's sermons and writings without knowing anything about the history of slavery or reconstruction or segregation and how it determined the lives of African Americans for many decades in this country. In Matthew 26, when Jesus says the poor will always be with us, he's not a wealthy person throwing up his hands and saying, oh well, poverty, what can you do about it? When Jesus says this, he says it as a poor person who lived and breathed poverty every single day of his life. And he is someone who ministered almost exclusively to the poor. He walked with them. He shared meals with them. These were his friends. These were his followers. What all this means is that if one reads Matthew 26 as, as something that makes poverty a secondary concern for the church, then we face the strange situation of saying that we are called to worship a homeless man on Sunday, but are called to ignore them every other day of the week. And friends, that seems like that does not make sense for this story. Now the second thing I think we need to know to untangle this paradox of Matthew 26 is that when Jesus says the poor will always be with you, he's actually quoting a passage from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 15.11, to be exact, is the second passage uh, that was read this morning. Now, this is a point that's easily lost on us. The gospel writers are not in the habit of providing footnotes and citations that help us make these connections, unfortunately. But I suspect that for the earliest readers of the gospel, this point would have jumped off the page to them. They not only would have known that Jesus was quoting Deuteronomy 15, but they would have known the context of that verse and what the verses said leading up to the one that he quotes. And if you think back to that reading from Deuteronomy 15, we see that the point of the text is to say, look, since poverty is the norm, since the world is rigged to privilege the few at the expense of the rest, because poverty is, is virtually inevitable, or the conditions that lead to poverty are inevitable, God's people should do everything possible to address the problem. So Jesus' words, the poor will always be with you, they're not words of resignation, as the popular interpretation suggests. They are a call to action. And think about the language of Deuteronomy 15. It calls Israel to open their hand to the poor and needy neighbor. It exhorts them not to be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards the, their neighbor in need. It calls them to be liberal and ungrudging in their giving. And Deuteronomy 15 doesn't just speak in generalities. It actually offers some concrete plans to solve poverty in the ancient world. The plan was that every Sabbath year, which means every seventh year, one in seven, every seventh year, individuals were to forgive any outstanding debts. Now, this is one of those things that we encounter in the Old Testament that seems kind of crazy and completely unrealistic. And how in the world would, would we do this today? But let me assure you, that this plan was crazy in the ancient world as well. It was a radical solution, not just to poverty as an individual issue, but to poverty as a societal problem. To understand this, just think for a second about how poverty worked 
in the ancient world. If we were ancient Israel, virtually all of us would have a little small plot of land that was passed down through our family from generation to generation. And we would farm that land as subsistence farmers. So we would basically grow all that we needed. All of that works well until something goes wrong. Imagine there's a blight, there's a drought, there's a flood. And one year, your crop doesn't come in. You can't go down to the store and just buy the grocery stores that you need because the, all the money you had was built into that farm. So you take out a loan. And if all goes well the next year, there's a bountiful harvest, and you have enough to eat and enough to pay back your loan. But if you don't, you have a problem. There was exorbitant interest rates in the ancient world, much like payday lenders today. And so you would have to take more radical measures. You typically would have to kind of rent yourself out as an indentured servant to work off the money that you owed back. And if that didn't work, you would eventually have to sell your land. But without land in the ancient world, you were destined to poverty. And not just you, but so also your kids. To lose your land was to start a cycle of intergenerational poverty. So then think about that idea and the solution that Deuteronomy 15 offers. If you forgive debts, you basically short-circuit this system of intergenerational poverty. It's radical, but it would move the needle in terms of solving poverty in the ancient world. This idea of forgiving debts is actually something that we pray about. We just prayed about it about 10 minutes ago. In the background of the Lord's Prayer, when we say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, that likely is referring back to this system of forgiving debts. And some scholars have even thought that the Lord's Prayer was originally a prayer that was prayed in this seventh year, when debts were actually forgiven. Real debts were actually forgiven. Now, all of this is just the tip of the iceberg in the Old Testament about how to address poverty. There were even more radical measures that allowed for the release of indentured servants and the return of land if it was sold. All of this was in place in the Old Testament to assure that while poverty was inevitable, it was also solvable. And I think Jesus knows this, and I think when he quotes this passage, he has this idea in the back of his head that while poverty is inevitable, it's unacceptable, and God's people must move to do something about it. Now this brings me to the third and final thing we need to know to understand this passage, and it's this. What exactly is wrong with the disciples' plan? They seem like they had a, a good idea in place. I don't think it's their motives that was the problem. They seem to truly want to care for the poor by, by selling the ointment and having the money. They would be able to provide for the immediate needs of the poor in their area. I think the disciples really get that the good news Jesus offers to the poor is not just about getting to heaven and having their sins forgiven. It's about actually addressing the real economic and material needs in their lives. I think that disciples get all of this. The problem is not their motives, it's their method. Their plan falls into the category of what the Atlanta-based community developer Bob Lupting calls toxic charity. Though it means well, their plan doesn't result in doing good for the very people they hope to serve. For one, their plan is highly transactional. They simply want to turn the ointment into money and distribute the proceeds. Lupton calls this one-way giving. 
The problem with it is that no relationship is established. There's no mutuality. The poor only receive. They aren't empowered to participate in the process that addresses their need. And when that happens, the poor are robbed of dignity. Poverty is addressed, but actual poor people are kept at an arm's distance. Second, their plan only addresses the immediate needs of the poor. William Sloan Coffin, who was the father of the peace and justice movement in the church and a former chaplain at Yale and senior pastor at Riverside Church in New York City, once wrote, many of us are eager to respond to injustices as long as we can do so without having to confront the causes of it. I wonder if this applies to the disciples. They were eager to meet the immediate needs of these poor people. And no doubt their plan will do just that. They could have fed countless people that day with the money they got from that jar. But did the disciples ever ask, why were these people hungry in the first place? What systems were in place that generated and perpetuated poverty? And what can be done about eradicating those systems and rewiring things in a way that allowed for empowerment and dignity among those they served? These questions, in fact, I think are hard to answer. But the solutions to them, and the solutions to them might not be immediately gratifying. But if you think back to that passage from Deuteronomy 15, the very things that it's talking about, relieving debt, releasing slaves, giving back land, all of it is about addressing poverty and its causes not poverty and its symptoms. And I think Jesus is challenging the disciples or is rejecting a system of charity in which all we do is think about immediate needs and not underlying causes. So in light of all these observations about the disciples' plan being transactional and being focused only on immediate needs, I think what is clear is that Jesus isn't critiquing the disciples for wanting to serve the poor. I think he's critiquing how they go about doing it. The alternative to their model is not just worshiping Jesus as the popular interpretation goes, rather it's finding ways to more faithfully enact our call to serve the poor. So what does that look like? Well that's another big topic uh, that would take a lot longer to address and one I devote a whole course to at Candler. But for now let me leave you with three simple invitations that I think help us live into healthier, more effective models of poverty relief. First, remember that meaning well is not the same thing as doing good. I so often hear Christians say that our hearts just need to be in the right place and God will do the rest. It sounds pious and there's something to affirm about it, but we would never do that in so many other areas of life. You have a major surgery coming up? Well, let's just hope your doctor has her heart in the right place. Who cares about her training? Need to build a bridge? Let's just have your heart in the right place and let's not worry about architecture and physics and all those sorts of things. We don't approach most of life that way. And so the challenge, I think, is to not approach our solutions to poverty that way. Think about its goals, think about its effectiveness, assess how it's trying to get at underlying causes and not just meet immediate needs. The stakes are just too high in our world today to approach poverty any differently. Second, be a neighbor. We can't deal with poverty as an issue while keeping poor people at a distance. 
We need to start living and, and interacting in proximity with those we serve so that we run into them at the grocery store, at the playground, so that our kids go to the same schools as their kids. This is the only way we create mutuality, is neighboring. And it's the only way that we can begin to understand the needs of a community, the problems they face, and even the assets they have within their communities that will solve the problem. Third, and finally, care about causes. You've heard the saying, give a man a fish, feed him for a day. Teach him to fish, feed him for a lifetime. It captures that idea of empowerment that Bob Lupton talks about. But really, we need to go a step further. We need to wonder, why are certain lakes without fish in the first place? Who controls access to the lakes that do have the fish? And who benefits from the high cost of selling fish in poor neighborhoods? Martin Luther King Jr. makes a similar point in a sermon on the Good Samaritan, and I'll leave you with this. Martin Luther King says, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside, but that will only be an initial act. One day, we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that the edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. Friends, my hope and prayer for you this morning as individuals and as a congregation is that you get to work redoing the road to Jericho wherever it is here in this city that you not only offer compassion to the poor, but that you work towards initiatives that address the very conditions that generate and perpetuate poverty. For in the end, I think this is the best and most faithful way of responding to Jesus' words, the poor will always be with you. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching from Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m and a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd, a block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.